You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. Oh boy, it's old-timey movie time. This is The Wolf Dog, a serialized mascot adventure series from 1933, starring Rin Tin Tin Jr. And I'm sorry to say Rin Tin Tin Jr. is a pale imitation of his dad, truly the Charlie Sheen of dogs. The story of The Wolf Dog is, well, there are about 30 stories in The Wolf Dog, packed into a concentration of serendipitous plot contrivances so thick you could spread it on French bread. But a mercifully abridged overview goes like this. Poor boy Frank Courtney, growing up on a small homestead in a location that defies all rational geography, learns that the woman who raised him is not actually his mother. Frank, you know I love you, don't you? Well, yes, mother. You mustn't call me that anymore. Why? I'm not your mother. But that he is in fact the child of Jim Courtney, the president of a multi-million dollar Los Angeles travel line. But Jim is also a daredevil pilot who recently went missing and is wrongly presumed dead, as time will tell, during an attempt to circumnavigate the globe with his dog, Pal. That leaves the literally mustache-twirling melodrama villain Norman Bryan in charge of the company. He's Andrew's boy, all right, and he's coming back here to claim his inheritance. But you're still his guardian under the will, and you have control of the company. Yes, until he becomes of age, and then everything goes to him. The young Frank, rightful heir to the company and its fortune, heads off for L.A., trailed by an endless cavalcade of Brian's seedy henchmen with an uncanny ability to badly pretend to look around before discussing their evil schemes. Of course, there's the possibility that he may never come of age. And there's the possibility that he may never reach Los Angeles. Brian is intent on killing Frank before he can claim his inheritance. But luckily for Frank, he meets two friends along the way. Well, you're not a wolf. You're a dog. A German shepherd whose name he luckily guesses... I'm not going to hurt you. Be a pal. Pal. So that's your name. And who, even more luckily, is in actuality the dog of his supposedly deceased father and... Bob Whitlock, a radio operator for the shipping company. So that's the extremely simplified, yet still too complicated, main plot. The Los Angelino Dolphin boy child Frank, 
along with radio operator Bob and wolf dog Pal, attempt to make their way back to California while a frankly baffling number of bad guys, roughnecks and rednecks, cons and ex-cons, longshoremen and businessmen, sisters and cousins and grandfathers, try to stop them. Frank is kidnapped and unkidnapped and re-kidnapped and meta-kidnapped. There are fistfights and gunfights and dogfights, car chases and boat chases, rope swings and high-flying acrobatics. So, so, so much happens to this kid that I started thinking that God himself didn't want him to inherit his father's company. But there is another competing main plot, arguably several, actually, but let's try to focus here. See, Bob Whitlock is more than just your ordinary radio operator. He's also an inventor whose grand achievement, a typewriter with wires and light bulbs sticking out of it, gets nabbed and rescued about as often as that precocious Frank Courtney. What is this wiry typewriter? Let's let Bob and Frank demonstrate. Gosh, Bob, if it works, you ought to be able to sell it for a lot of money. I'm not worried about that, Frank. As a matter of fact, Mr. Bryan, the president of this company, wanted to buy an interest in it some time ago. But I refused his offer. You see, I'm figuring to give my invention to the government. Think what it will mean to our country to be absolutely safe from enemy attacks. As long as airplanes, battleships, and submarines use oil and gasoline, my lightning ray can blow them to pieces. Boy, I hope it works. Well, here's where we find out. Hand me that can of gasoline. A lightning ray that can instantly explode any ship, plane, or car it's pointed at. Sounds like a pretty typical bad Hollywood sci-fi MacGuffin, right? I suppose that's exactly what it is, come to think of it. The lightning ray in the wolf dog is truly a hat on a hat, totally unnecessary to, or even distracting from, the already overstuffed story of Frank Courtney, a boy so consistently within inches of violent death that you start to wish it would just fucking catch him already. Boy, I hope it works. God, I hate his smug little face. Anyway, while the lightning ray should have been left on the cutting room floor, have I mentioned that this thing runs a full three and a half hours? It'd be wrong to dismiss it as just another dumb plot device, dreamt up by a lazy screenwriter for padding. Because as far as the cast, crew, and viewing audience in 1933 knew, Bob Whitlock was based on a factual person. And his invention was out there, in the real world, ready to threaten it with terrible destruction. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. And there's no need to be clever. There's no reason to gussy this up. Let's just call this episode what it is. Death Rays. The story of the Death Ray begins on Lake Pontchartrain in 1876. Could start on the island of Sicily in 212 BC, which is when Archimedes supposedly assembled an array of mirrored shields to focus burning hot lights on the invading ships of Roman general Marcus Claudius Marcellus. But there are two problems with that. The first is that there's no good reason to believe that Archimedes actually built said mirror array, and a few good reasons to think he didn't, namely, that attempts to replicate the weapon throughout the centuries have mostly come up wanting, and anyway, the Romans definitely weren't put back by Archimedes' heat ray given that they conquered Syracuse and murdered Archimedes' mid-math problem. The other problem is that Lake Pontchartrain has something that Sicily doesn't. Zydeco music! That's what I'm talking about. 
1876, a crowd assembled along the south shore of Lake Pontchartrain. Military men, investors, high society, and all the rabble that could crane their necks. They pointed their eyes out over the water to a schooner sitting low on the lake with the hopes that Professor James C. Wingard would soon blow it to smithereens. Nearly everything about the story of Professor James Wingard is suspicious. For starters, I'm at least 95% sure that he was not, in fact, a professor. His first profession, instead, seems to have been as a riverboat pilot, at which he was involved in at least one infamous shipwreck. On March 1, 1844, he was piloting the DeSoto when it struck and sank the steamboat Buckeye, killing at least 46 people. It seems likely to me that he was also the pilot of the Amaranth, which struck the Boreas in view of a young mud clerk named Samuel Clemens, who wrote about the incident under the pen name Mark Twain in his novel The Gilded Age. But I can't prove it. He was also a seemingly prominent figure in New Orleans society. He held a number of society balls, at least one of which was for the New Orleans Whig Party, of which he was named a vice president in 1852. By then, the 32-year-old James Constantine Wingard had another job, though he seems to have kept up work as a pilot, too. Sometime not long after 1850, he'd begun a career as a medium and clairvoyant. He performed feats of automatic writing in which, according to Reverend James Babcock Ferguson, he entered a trance and wrote two separate messages at the same time, one from each hand, in languages he did not consciously understand. French, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Arabic. His sister-in-law, too, was a self-styled clairvoyant, and in 1854 the two of them had supposedly solved a murder which had occurred upon the levee. According to the American Phrenological Journal, obviously the most credible source out there, Wingard had mesmerized his sister-in-law into viewing the scene of the crime, and she had described under hypnosis the appearances and movements of the perpetrators, leading to their arrests. In 1857, he turned his psychic energies towards healing, marketing himself as a clairvoyant physician. He claimed to have invented an apparatus which cured all chest diseases, including consumption, and said that he paid, quote, special attention to female diseases. And I cannot impress upon you firmly enough how many alarm bells it sets off when a certain kind of mesmerist says he specializes in treating women. And that certain kind of mesmerist is all of them. In the 1860 census, Wingard has the nerve to call himself not professor, but doctor, which is also very much not true. It seems as though the psychic physician bit couldn't survive during the Civil War, though, so soon enough, Wingard was on to his next weird grift. In December 1861, Wingard was trying to get money out of the New Orleans City Council in order to build a mounted rifle gun, which he promised would be capable of firing 192 bullets a minute. The record doesn't indicate whether or not Wingard received the requested 550 bucks from the city, but one way or the other, he doesn't seem to have ever succeeded in building his machine gun. Not that that stopped him from trying to take credit for it, of course. In 1873, a reporter for the New Orleans Bulletin wrote a public letter to the Times-Picayune, gently chastising them for mentioning the Gatling gun without giving due credit to its inventor, James C. Wingard. The reporter admits that Wingard never actually technically completed his own gun and refers to the weapon as a Gatling gun without any obvious awareness that the Gatling gun was named for its inventor Richard J. Gatling, who completed the first such weapon before Wingard's proposal even came before the city council, but no matter. 
in that letter, which, come to think of it, I'm beginning to doubt was actually written by anyone but Wingard himself, we get our first hint of the fabulous new invention that will eventually bring the crowds out to Lake Pontchartrain in 1876. Quote, He has made another invention, one which he believes will revolutionize naval warfare. In February, he made the announcement, as carried in the Nevada State Journal. James C. Wingard of New Orleans, the inventor of the original Gatling gun, no he isn't, claims to have discovered a force by which he can destroy vessels built of iron or otherwise so as to leave no trace of them in their former shape, and that too, without approaching nearer than five miles, unless it is desirable to operate at a shorter distance. This claim is attracting considerable discussion among scientific naval officers who are anxious to witness the demonstration of this power and the effect of this new discovery. Mr. Wingard claims that a little navy of small vessels, such as he could design, and the equipment of each which would cost probably three-fourths less than any ironclad vessel of war, with his invention attached, could sweep the seas clean of the whole world's navies combined. He scheduled the first demonstration of his invention for May 9, 1876. Between 4 and 5 p.m. on the day, he would destroy a schooner on the lake from a mile away the destruction would be wrought by what Wingard would only call the nameless force, which his device channeled through, quote, two-way electricity. When May 9th came along, Wingard's nameless force was supplanted by a far more named one, the wind. The schooner Augusta, which Wingard was to destroy, was blown away repeatedly from the testing ground, and finally its crew gave up and the boat disappeared from view. Wingard, too, was nowhere to be found, and a crowd of thousands grumbled and walked away angry. On May 15th, Wingard tried again, but this time the men employed to bring the Augusta to the firing ground were confused and instead plopped the old boat four miles away and left it there. A third test was set for May 29th, and again the wind almost prevented the Augusta from being towed to the testing site, but after a few hours and the charity of a passing steamer, the old schooner was dragged to place and the signal was given to fire the weapon. Wingard had mounted the device, which goes curiously undescribed in the literature, on a small skiff, which he rowed out towards the Augusta. He began circling the schooner, moving as if in a pantomime of a naval attack, round and round, strike and retreat. For two hours, the display continued as the crowd groused and grumbled. Then, at 3 p.m., on the dot, there was a flash aboard Wingard's skiff, and the whole boat was obscured by a cloud of smoke. The Augusta, on the other hand, was just fine. Someone in the crowd suggested that the flash and smoke were from a revolver, and another conjectured that Wingard had shot himself in embarrassment. Then the clouds opened up, soaking the lake, and Wingard drove off away from the spectators without a word of either explanation or apology. It was do-or-die time. In order to finance his invention, Wingard had raised seed money from a group of investors, 600 bucks to build the death ray, 200 bucks to buy the old boat. The investors then formed the Committee for the Nameless Force. The rules were that they'd pay Wingard 100 grand for a percentage of the patent rights, provided that he got the thing to work first. But after three attempts, the committee agreed to have Wingard examined and committed if he bungled things again. June 1st, 1876, 2.35 p.m. Sure, the crowd, much smaller this time. Maybe because Wingard had stopped making public invitations after the third failure. Maybe because people no longer believed him. The Augusta was in place. The signal was given. 
Wingard's skiff was deployed about a mile off. After a minute and a half, the Augusta blew sky high. And all that was left of the old schooner were tiny bits of disintegrated boat. The crowd, or what crowd there was at least, went wild. When Wingard returned to shore, his friends went to shake his hand, but Wingard couldn't meet them or fully celebrate his victory. In the process of destroying the Augusta, he had severely burnt his hand. He said that the gloves he used in the operation of the machine weren't electric proof enough. But hey, what's a little second degree burn when you've got a hundred grand and the world's first working death ray? Granted, Winger didn't actually have either of those things, but it sure seemed like he did on June 1st, 1876. A few days later, the bubble, well, no, it didn't quite burst yet, but it certainly started to wobble. The Galveston Daily News ran a story saying that one of their reporters had gone out to the scene of the disintegrated Augusta and had found amid the shreds of wreckage a metal tube filled with a black powder and connected to a long wire laid some distance from the exploded boat. Explode a boat? Explode? Anyway, the insinuation of the article was that the unnamed force was a fraud, and it seemed like Wingard's investors were at least partly convinced that was true. Or else there was another reason that they didn't pay up. That could be. I do have another possible reason on hand, after all. According to the New Orleans Daily Democrat, on the night of March 20th, 1877, neither Professor nor Dr. James C. Wingard was summoned to the sickbed of a patient who he quickly treated with his clairvoyant medicine. Didn't take very long. He returned home a little past midnight, where he discovered that his nameless force had been stolen. The Daily Democrat surmised that the thieves must have been sent by Louisiana Governor Stephen B. Packard, who we talked about in our episode about the 1876 Hayes-Tilden election. Packard was, at the time, under siege by the Klan, and soon enough would be driven from office. Packard was a Republican, so the Daily Democrats' theory shouldn't be given much, or any, credence. I've got a feeling that Wingard faked the theft to avoid examination of his device, but I don't have any evidence for that, just a creeping suspicion and the sure knowledge that his machine didn't work. At any rate, after the theft, real or otherwise, Professor Wingard left New Orleans and set up a new operation to build a larger nameless force machine in Boston. He brought two associates with him to Massachusetts, James McClintock and George Holgate, each of whom had life stories nearly as intriguing as Wingard's. Holgate was a Scottish immigrant who settled in Oshkosh, Wisconsin to do his weird things. On the books, he owned a gun shop, but he also advertised an ever-expanding gallery of inventions, including a device which supposedly kept food fresh via ozone. Most of his inventions were of a more direct sort, explosives. He had one bomb that he claimed had the explosive force of 900 pounds of gunpowder, but which he could fit within a cigar box. He had a series of burning machines, which produced intense jets of flames for hours at a time. As a merchant of such terrible weapons, George Holgate had a strict code about their sales. He would only sell to someone who could pay. As he told a reporter who questioned him about reports of Russian nihilists buying his bombs so to assassinate Tsar Nicholas, I know nothing of the uses to which my machines are put. 
I know more ask a man when he buys one whether he proposes to blow up a czar or set fire to a palace any more than a gunsmith asks his customers whether they are about to commit murder or a match merchant asks if his purchaser is about to become an incendiary. I make the machines for those who want them. I don't believe in killing kings with bombs, nor do I think that it is proper to assassinate statesmen with knives. But I would not have the cutlery business stopped because bad men make improper use of the dagger. If the nihilists are in earnest, if they possess half the courage they are credited with, they will be supreme in a few years. I do not believe that the czar will be crowned. I could have cut that quote earlier, but how could anyone resist the phrase, if the nihilists are in earnest? Holgate's explosives business wasn't just defined by what one might have called his own moral nihilism. It was also punctuated by a creepy kind of creative streak. He built bombs within the rims of hats, bombs with keyhole triggers, and a special toy he called a little exterminator, which he said released a secret chemical that killed anyone within 100 feet. Wingard's other associate is a guy we've already brushed up against before, James McClintock. Like Wingard, he too was a steamboat captain, and supposedly the youngest one in the history of the Mississippi River. Also like Wingard, he turned into something of an inventor around the outbreak of the Civil War. Together with his friend and machinist Baxter Watson, they drew up plans for a machine that they claimed could produce a thousand rifle bullets an hour, with only manpower, and for the low, low cost of just around $2,000. If the Confederacy wanted to go the extra mile, McClintock and Watson could add a steam engine for a thousand or so on top, which would improve the machine's output tenfold. Nobody ever bought McClintock and Watson's machine because it was never built, and it was never built because it wouldn't have worked, but the plans, outrageous and untenable as they might have been, did a good job convincing the public that they were serious engineers. Particularly convinced was Horace Hunley, a New Orleans lawyer who joined up with them and provided $30,000 in capital for a much bigger project, a submarine. Oh yes, it has been a year, but we are back on submarines again, at least for a brief moment, because Professor Wingert's subordinate was the primary designer of what is probably the most famous, or infamous, submarine of the 19th century, the CSS Hunley. If you need a refresher, the CSS Hunley is sometimes referred to as the first reliable submarine of war, which is an admittedly generous description, given that the Hunley managed to kill just about everyone who ever set foot in it, including Hunley himself, in fact, James McClintock was just about the only person associated with the Hunley who lived to tell the tale. Uh, for a time, at least. McClintock and Hunley had fled New Orleans from Mobile, Alabama, when the Union Army took the city in 1862, and when the war was done, he seems to have settled there for a bit, operating a dredge boat. At the same time, he was still trying to sell his submarine plans, which he brought to the Canadian Royal Navy in 1872. By 1879, he was settled down as a salesman in New Albany, Ohio. He had a wife and family and a seemingly normal life. But he also had an offer from Professor James Wingard. It seems likely that McClintock, if not Holgate, was already along for the ride when Wingard succeeded in nameless force rang the Augusta on Lake Pontchartrain in 1876. But both of them were definitely critical pieces of the plan in Boston. And if you're wondering why a death ray inventor would need the help of a submarine builder and a bomb maker, well, take a minute and think it over. In 1879, the three men had raised somewhere between $1,800 and $2,000 for the building of a new nameless force machine. 
But the Boston investors, like the New Orleanian ones before, wanted a proof of concept. So once again, Professor Wingard began putting together a practical demonstration of his death ray. He got a few boats in order. He chartered the steamship Edith, bought a small sloop called the Ianthe, and an old broken-down hulk that would serve as the target of his weapon. On October 13th, the Edith towed the old boat out to position, while Holgate lay seasick in the hold of the Ianthe. Once the target was in place, Wingard, on board the Edith, began back towards the sailboat, where they would soon blow up their second schooner. Very soon, as it happens. Too soon, even. Picture a line out of Boston Harbor. At the beginning of the line was the Ianthe, and at the other end was the old schooner they meant to demolish. About two-thirds of the way out was the Edith, which was under steam towards the Ianthe, when a gigantic explosion rang out between the two boats. It seemed as though a bare bit of sea had just spontaneously erupted, and both boats quickly made way for the site of the boom, where they found nothing but some tiny splinters of wreckage. Like he had done the first three times in New Orleans, Wingard suddenly and brusquely called off the demonstration. But he was more flustered this time and eager to get away from the questions of his observers. Where had that explosion come from? What was it? What had made the bits of wreckage they found in the water? Wingard had time for none of it. By nightfall, he had fled the city. The bomb-making Holgate was quickly on his way, too, after a quick stop at their hotel room to pick up and run off with the effects of James McClintock. Who? was nowhere to be found. So, there was supposed to be an experiment where Wingard would again turn an old ship into a pillar of fire with his nameless force machine. But instead, a few hours ahead of schedule, a different pillar of fire suddenly manifested halfway between the machine and its target. And then, everybody bailed, like their backyard baseball game just broke a window, leaving everyone else wondering what had just gone down. The answer is complicated. Here's what the Home Journal had to say on November 20th. A dangerous fraud. It seems from facts which have recently come to light that Professor James C. Wingard of New Orleans, the inventor of what he calls a nameless force, an exhibition of power of which he pretended to give in Lake Pontchartrain some three years ago, was the chief mover in the experiment which resulted in the death of Mr. J.R. McClintock in Boston Harbor. Early last summer, Wingard turned up in Boston with credentials from various parties in New Orleans and succeeded in raising several thousand dollars for the purpose of experimenting his invention. He was very mysterious, but told wonderful stories of the power of his terrible agent. His secret, if he had any, he kept well and went no further in the way of explanation than to say that his nameless force was produced by positive and negative currents of electricity. McClintock and a man by the name of Holgate appeared upon the scene sometime in September and from that time until the disaster were the assistance of Wingard in preparing for the experiment. Since McClintock's death, facts have come to light, which go to show that the terrible force was nothing more than dynamite. This dynamite, to the amount of 30 or 40 pounds, was packed in a torpedo case which had been brought from New York. This work was done in a Boston hotel where, at all times, there were hundreds of people. If the slightest concussion had come to this material, the hotel might have been blown to pieces and many lives lost. The dynamite torpedo was carried to South Boston and placed on board of a yacht. It is no longer doubted that McClintock and his boatman, Swain, lost their lives by an accidental explosion of this torpedo. That Wingard has invented a new force is not believed in Boston. In fact, 
his nameless force is thought to be a swindle. The account Holgate gave, or one of them at least, is that he was to take the bomb from the sailboat Ianthe to the Hulk via a partially concealed rowboat and then detonate it on Wingard's signal, so as to give the impression that the nameless force had worked. But, being seasick, McClintock took his place, and just a mile out from the Ante, the bomb had been detonated on the rowboat, with McClintock and a hired crewman named Edward Swain aboard. Just how and why the bomb prematurely exploded is an intriguing question. By most accounts, it was probably unstable or misrigged, but the Daily Globe said that Holgate had detonated it remotely himself from within the Ante's cabin. Either way, McClintock and Swain were dead, though neither body was ever found, and both Wingard and Holgate left Boston before they could be arrested. Holgate headed to New York and then to Philadelphia, where he appears to have lived out the rest of his life. But Wingard really left, as in, nothing about him is to be found in the historical record after the day of the accident. No more inventions, no more demonstrations, no more riverboats, no more clairvoyant medical practices or psychic detective gigs, not even a date of death. He just vanished. The most amazing part of this story, though, isn't the vanishing of one culprit, but the reappearance of another. If you'll remember back to the Fool Killer series, you've listened, right? You recall that John Holland, the father of the successful military submarine, was employed around this time to build a sub for the Fenian Brotherhood, a group of Irish-American emigres who sought to bring independence to their homeland by waging war against Canada. Which may sound absurd, but the Fenians were well-manned, well-armed, well-trained, and well-funded. They were also big mouths who couldn't stop talking about their secret plans to anyone who would listen. By 1880, the British government was well aware that the Secret Brotherhood had a secret plan to wage secret war against them, and they began sending diplomats into American cities in search of more info on the specifics. In Philadelphia, the British consulate enlisted a double agent who was working for Holland's submarine effort. He was part of a team who were putting together torpedoes that were to be launched at British ships in Canadian harbors when the war kicked off. For the low price of $200 a month, about five grand in today's dollars, he said he would pass over info to the Brits and sabotage the Irish efforts. For the better part of two years, he took pay from both the Brotherhood and the English and furnished Robert Clipperton, the British consul, with samples from the Fenian bombs. In the end, he betrayed both the Irish and the Brits to whom he was betraying the Irish. Upon closer examination, the explosive samples he provided were fake. Before the British could question their inside man about his materials, he had slipped away, never to be heard from again, as fully as Professor Wingard. Except that this double agent already had an obituary, because he was already reported as dead. He called himself James R. McClintock. And I would love to be able to explain this for you, but there's really no good answer for any of it. Historian Mike Dash has offered two possible solutions. The first is that the man calling himself James McClintock and offering to spy on the Fenians was actually Holgate, looking to make a quick buck by pretending to be his dead associate. The best supporting evidence for this theory is that Robert Clipperton was based in Philadelphia, which is where he met with this McClintock, and Holgate is known to have been living there at the time. In addition, the info and materials that the spy turned over all had to do with explosives, which were Holgate's specialty, not submarines, which were McClintock's. 
The problem with this theory is that it's not at all obvious why Holgate would have wanted to pretend to be McClintock. Nobody at the time knew about McClintock's work on the CSS Hunley, so his name wouldn't have carried any weight with either the Fenians or the English. And the spy had been interviewed by Captain William Arthur, the British naval attaché, who was impressed by his knowledge of submarine technology. Before serving as naval attaché, Arthur was captain of HMS Vernon, the Royal Navy's torpedo school, so he wouldn't have been an easy man to bluff. The other theory, then, is that the man posing in Philadelphia as James McClintock was, in fact, James McClintock, and that he and Holgate sent Edward Swain out in a rowboat with the bomb to kill him in order to fake McClintock's death along with him. In the process, James McClintock would have then made his first double cross. Before betraying the Irish with fake torpedoes and the British with fake torpedo parts, he actually torpedoed the man who called himself Professor, James C. Wingard and his nameless force. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp assesses your needs to match you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. Send a message to your counselor anytime and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutical matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. They have licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, relationship, traumas, grief, and much more. And since they're available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com theconstant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their own mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot theconstant. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. After the explosion that may or may not have killed James McClintock, J.C. Wingard was spooked, guilty, and distraught. So, naturally, he disappeared like a fart in the wind. But his idea of a sort of force beam or death ray spread fast and thick around the world, like a fart in a city bus. It quickly became ubiquitous in fiction, not just in sci-fi stories like H.G. Wells, who came up with several varieties of death rays across his books, but in detective novels, spy novels, war novels, and more. And real people built death rays, too. Well, at least as much as Wingard had. The next guy to claim such an invention was John Hartman, a Civil War engineer who announced in 1898 that he had devised a way to guide electricity through the air via a modified searchlight. He said he could stun a rabbit at 50 feet with the arrangement he had put together, but assured interested parties that the strength of the ray varied with the strength of the light beam. If he had a brighter light, he could easily kill an entire platoon. The interested parties were interested, but left the party early, and nothing more of John Hartman and his electric searchlight were ever heard again. That takes us into the 20th century, which you could call the dawn of the death ray if you wanted to sound wicked cool. From just before the First World War until just after the end of the Second, a veritable cascade of death rays, yes, that is what you call a group of death rays, a cascade of death rays beamed their ways through the world's media, militaries, and public imagination. Most of the death ray claims are little blips, tiny stories about this or that inventor saying he can kill this or stun that, and then nothing more. Like German chemist Kurt Schimkes, who claimed in 1931 to have used his ray to explode a sea mine from 200 yards. Or Maurice Bernays Johnson, better known just as Bernays Johnson, who could probably fill a whole episode by himself. In a 1925 article about his search for a special salt to power a, quote, radio lamp, the New York Times described Bernays Johnson as the son of former Missouri Governor Johnson. That there had never been a Governor Johnson of Missouri was apparently untroubling to the Times. Bernays Johnson was best known not for his salt-powered radio lamp, but as the electrical wizard, or else, even better, the insouciant wizard. His act was to sit in an electric chair and get zapped by 2,200 volts without harm. On September 24, 1927, he performed the feat at Madison Square Garden with an iron bar that the Times recounts as melting in his mouth. Modern mechanics explained that Johnson was able to withstand the current because, quote, his skin is absolutely dry without even the tiniest beads of perspiration moisture, and consequently, his skin is a poor conductor of current. Sure thing, modern mechanics. In 1929, they also carried the claim that Johnson had developed an airship that flew by the means of, quote, a powerful radio wave which neutralizes the pull of gravity. Before the Times and modern mechanics started fawning over his many suspect achievements, Bernays announced the discovery of a new kind of ray, the deadly Z-ray, he called it, which the Detroit Free Press described as strong enough to down airplanes, paralyze men, and destroy battleships at half a mile. 
In that same very long, very elaborate, and totally credulous article, Johnson said that he had discovered Z-rays by accident, and that he had already succeeded in lifting a metal ship off the ground and holding it suspended in midair using his machine. Given that definitely real and not-at-all-bullshit claim, one has to wonder why he moved on to his other inventions, including an electric golf swing improver, a light powered by radio waves shot through women's heads, a device for frying eggs on women's heads, a wired-to-wireless telephone, which doesn't seem to have ever worked, a clip for securing dining car checks to tables on moving trains, a talking bed frame, search me, and much more. In 1984, a year before his death, he gave a charming but unreliable interview to a reporter for The Record, a newspaper out of Hackensack, New Jersey, in which he claimed to have worked for Thomas Edison as an errand boy slash inventor, for Charles P. Steinmetz helping to develop alternating current, as the personal pilot to Presidents Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon, who he claims to have taken to China, and so much more. Is any of it true? Probably not. But it's all downright adorable coming out of a 92-year-old Mickey Rooney look-alike with Coke bottle glasses and a pilot's jacket three sizes too large. My guess is that his fabulism didn't charm people as much when he was arrested for drunkenly crashing his car into Mrs. Mildred Lindquist's shrubbery in West Orange. Johnson defended himself pro se in court, where he told the judge that he had not driven the car at all, at least to his knowledge. His story was that he had been driving quite soberly through Cedar Grove when he picked up a hitchhiking soldier who sapped him over the head at a red light. The blow to the head, he said, left him with seven hours of complete amnesia, during which some sort of id-fueled alter ego beyond his reckoning or control got drunk and apparently assailed a couple of police officers with a train of profanities unfit for repetition in the courtroom. The judge was unmoved by this argument. Next up is Henry Floor, a San Jose inventor who a year before Shimkus gave a demonstration in which he turned his death ray on a tree covered with aphids and in seconds killed them. Floor described his death ray in suspiciously similar terms to John Hartman's. It channeled 160,000 volts of electricity through an aimed beam of light, and while his first demonstration succeeded only in knocking off the smallest of garden pests, he promised that with a little outside investment, he could build a more powerful version capable of killing animals or even human beings. He got help from a group of capital investors who sued him several years later for defrauding them with his fake death ray. And that's when things get very interesting. Because at court, Henry Floor demonstrated his death ray in front of a jury, and it worked. I mean, not super well. It took eight and a half minutes to kill a snake and six minutes to kill a lizard, both at close range, both held still so the beam could be continuously aimed at them, but it wasn't a fraud. The trial was held in August 1936, and by then, Floor seems to have changed his explanation of the device's workings. No longer was it channeling electricity through light. Instead, it used high-frequency vibrations, or else ultraviolet light, or else those were meant to be one and the same, which I suppose they kind of are. Anyway, Floor won the case, but seems to have given up on his now-somewhat-proven invention anyway. He stated in the press at the time that he would never allow it to be used as a weapon. Maybe we can assume he realized that was inevitable if he continued to develop it. But probably it was just the opposite. Floor's beam was never going to be effective for any sort of use. Even killing aphids with a seven-minute high-voltage death ray was plenty impractical. 
1924, the Death Raymakers really started coming out of the woodwork, including a Russian named Gramachikov, at least two unnamed Germans in league with the army, and another who was trying to defect to England. England, however, was already filled to bursting with death rays. There was one made by Professor T.F. Wall at Sheffield University, another made by two men called Pryor and Raff, another by barrister R. Russell Clark, and several from anonymous Englishmen living in Tunbridge Wells, Manchester, Maidenhead, and another from an unnamed corporal in the British Fourth Army. Add to that a handful of Parisians, a couple Californians, and an untold assortment of mad scientists from everywhere in between, and you start to get a feel for just how popular this line of work was. But there were five men who you might call the kings of the death ray, if you want to sound totally fucking righteous. Three of them you're unlikely to have heard of today, but the other two, well, the other two might be surprising. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The man who seems to have really ignited the death ray imagination and inspired so many of his fellow countrymen was Harry Grindle Matthews, a British electrical engineer and veteran of the Second Boer War. He was wounded in combat, and that seems to have engendered an amount of respect and consideration towards him that he, well, greatly abused. In 1911, he announced his first big invention, the Aerophone which was supposed to be able to send confidential messages between airplanes and their ground stations. The RFC, forerunner to the Royal Air Force, asked for a demonstration of the aerophone, which Matthews agreed to given under a set of suspicious conditions, the number one being that no experts in radio be allowed to watch. Hmm. Okay. All the same, the brass agreed, and in 1912 the demo was set up. Before it could start, Matthews called it off, saying that some of the military engineers were poking around his machine. The RFC apologized for the misunderstanding, but that was the end of the aerophone. It never showed up again. A few years later, he created a remote-controlled boat that the British Navy verified as functional and even purchased from him, although they don't seem to have ever done anything with it. In 1921, he revealed what he called the world's first talking picture, an interview with Ernest Shackleton recorded shortly before his last Antarctic expedition. The film was a total bust, which seems surprising until you realize that this first talking picture was at best the 10th. Two years later, he was back, this time with his death ray. It was good timing on his part. That year, there were a series of newspaper stories across Europe about airplanes stalling out while flying over the same part of Bavaria. The press speculated that Germany might have access to some sort of ray that interfered with internal combustion engines, a possibility which the French military staunchly denied. And the German military was happy to entertain, repeatedly suggesting that maybe they did have such a thing. The French government found the stallouts to be coincidental and much exaggerated, but few enough appeared to have fully believed them. The ray that Harry Grindle Matthews unveiled towards the end of 1923 could also stop engines at a distance up to seven miles. But it was far more potent than that. He said it could level armies and kill hundreds with one sweep of its beam. The nature and mechanism of that beam 
were seen as either suspiciously vague or draped in appropriate curtains of secrecy, depending on who you asked. Again, the British government was interested and requested a demonstration. And again, Harry Grindle Matthews requested an unreasonable set of restrictions. This time around, however, they had more trouble reaching an accord. So Harry decided to show off his death rate to the press instead. In his lab, he performed a series of impressive feats. The ray stopped a motorcycle engine from 50 feet away, ignited gunpowder, illuminated a light bulb across the room, and managed to kill a mouse from 20 paces. The reporters were gullibly impressed, but the British military had snuck a couple of men of their own into the lab who came away far less satisfied. Thus began a frustrating media war between Grindle Matthews and the English government. The papers wrote about the Grindle Matthews death ray with wild abandon, parroting its inventors every unlikely talking point. Then, pressured by the public and members of parliament who read the coverage, the military would extend a fresh offer. Could you stop a motorcycle of our choosing at one of our fields instead of your lab? Grindle Matthews refused with a show of indignation that he would be treated so skeptically. He started threatening in the press to take his death ray elsewhere. He said he had offers from other countries, chiefly France, and if his country didn't respect his achievements enough to take him at his word, he'd just have to betray them and deliver the world's first superweapon across the channel. Oh my God, screamed the public. Please just give him what he wants. We can't have the death ray falling into the hands of the French. It's a death ray, not a, what the bloody hell would you call it, a rayon de la mort. Yeah, who says my French is terrible? Everyone? Well, foutre le camp. But the military would answer, he refuses to show us that this thing works at all, and most of our experts agree it doesn't. As Grindle Matthews continued his threat by literally slowly walking onto a plane bound for Paris, the British High Court stepped in, but not the way Harry had hoped. They issued an injunction that said Matthews couldn't sell his death ray until further notice. So he stepped on the gas, boarded the plane before the injunction could be hand-delivered, and claimed from France several hours later that the injunction was therefore null and void. Goaded by another public outcry, the military sweetened their offer. They would give him a thousand pounds if he just came back to England and stopped a motorcycle for them, but still under their set conditions. Matthews again refused and told the press that since landing, he'd already received eight offers for his death ray. The British consulate sent a representative to meet with him in France to try to convince him to come back to England and bring his death ray along with him. But after the meeting, the representative, Charles Dick, wrote to the air ministry to say he suspected Matthews was full of it. With the British service basically washing their hands of the Grindle Matthews ray, the private sector stepped in to try to avert the national embarrassment of losing the key to world peace to France. Sir Samuel Instone, founder of Instone Airline, offered to give the inventor several thousand pounds annually if he would come back. But Matthews said no to Instone too, probably because his offer also was contingent on satisfying Instone scientists that the ray was real. Still, Matthews did come back to London, probably because he encountered the same hiccups with the French authorities as the English ones. Yet, he told the British papers that his deals with several French parties were still very much in the offing. The cycle renewed, with the public begging the government to give Matthews what he wanted, the press chiding them for slow footing, and the air service trying to find a workable compromise, which Matthews refused to agree to. Instead, he produced a short film, entitled The Death Ray, 
which purported to give a demonstration of his invention's fantastical abilities. And there are a lot of things that stick out about the Death Ray movie. Firstly, it's interesting that Harry Grindel Matthews, self-proclaimed father of talking pictures, made his own film, Silent. Secondly, it's worth noting that on several occasions before and after the film was released, Matthews abraded people for daring to call his invention a death ray. It was, he would correct, neither a ray nor a... death? That sentence fell apart. It was an electric beam, Matthews contended. Yet, at many other times, including within the movie he made, which was titled The Death Ray, he was very happy to call it that himself. The final curious thing about the movie is that it is quite obviously, well, a, a movie. In it, Matthews works a big machine that looks straight out of Fritz Lang or Flash Gordon. Actually, the main bad guy in the Flash Gordon stories, Ming the Merciless, was known to employ a Grindel Matthews Ray. The Death Ray is slickly produced, but even to the critics of 1924, who weren't nearly as used to film, it was clear that with all the edits and special effects, nothing of value could be said about the invention from it. So, Matthews again stomped off in frustration. This time he came to the US, again with the explicit threat that if his motherland wouldn't treat him right, i.e. give him a bunch of money for nothing, he'd be forced to sell the most destructive weapon of all time to the Yankees. But, Harry Grindel Matthews had failed to anticipate one very important thing, the gullibility of Americans. When he landed in New York, the Americans were like, Wow, we've heard all about your death ray. Would you like to show it off at Madison Square Garden next to this guy in an electric chair? We'll give you $25,000. Not every American was so easily dazzled. Professor Robert W. Wood, who you might remember as the guy who single-handedly destroyed the idea of N-rays in our episode Seeing is Believing, was particularly nonplussed. He said that if Matthews set up his death ray in New York, he would go and stand in front of it. Matthews had to make up an excuse. He said that he would love to demonstrate his death ray, but don't call it a death ray or else do, except that, gosh darn it, the English government had forbidden him from displaying it outside of Great Britain. This seems to have been an allusion to the injunction he'd been slapped with when he left for France, which, one, didn't say anything about displaying or showing off the death ray, two, was no longer in effect, and three, Matthews had already repeatedly said didn't apply to him. This also didn't stop him from claiming that America was going to buy his death ray once he returned to England. Unfortunately for Matthews, this seems to have finally pushed the English media past the point of blind acceptance. They didn't understand how he had sold his ray to an American since he had reportedly refused to show it there, and they didn't understand why he couldn't say who exactly the buyer was, and what had happened to those French offers he'd been bragging about. And why was the only evidence in support of his invention a silent sci-fi movie? Rather than answer any of those questions, Matthews left England again, moving to the United States where he went to work for Warner Brothers. He doesn't seem to have ever talked about the death ray again. He created several dozen other inventions, though, most of which were absolute codswallop, like his aerial minefield, his submarine detection device, and several other rays, which reportedly made people sick in South Wales. But... His sky projector, which was exactly what it sounded like, a projector that displayed film images on clouds, did apparently work. During his first demonstration, he projected an angel onto a cloud outside of Hampstead Heath that reportedly caused several people a few miles away to fall to their knees in prayer, believing that it was a sign that the second coming of Christ was upon them. 
This sky projector was also, in all likelihood, the inspiration for the bat signal. And Harry Grindel Matthews, knowing he had a hit on his hand, sunk all of his money into it. But even though it supposedly worked, nobody wanted it. In 1931, Harry Grindel Matthews went bankrupt. Then he rebuilt himself and made a musical instrument played by light. Then he went bankrupt again. And then he married Ghana Walska. Oh, for Christ's sake. <laughs> this was supposed to be a simple story. A story about death rays. It should have been short. It should have been simple. But now we're... Oh, how long into this are we? Oh, we're like an hour into this. <laughs> and I haven't even mentioned Tesla yet. So, it looks like this is going to have to be a two-parter, too. That's okay, right? I'll give you all the famous death ray people and a couple of other obscure weirdos in two weeks. And in exchange... I can spend a little while longer telling you about Harry Grindel Matthews' wife, the pathologically plucky Ms. Ghana Walska. At the time of their wedding, in 1938, Ghana Walska was rumored to be worth $125 million. That's approximately two and a quarter billion adjusted for inflation. It doesn't seem to me to be at all unreasonable to speculate that Harry married for the money. And who could blame him? Not Gonawalska, who probably came by her fortune the exact same way. There are a few reasons you might already know about Gonawalska, even if you don't know it. If you're from Santa Barbara, or really into horticulture, you might know her as the builder of Lotus Land, one of the most esteemed gardens in the world. If you're really into film, you may know her as the inspiration for Susan Alexander, the second wife of Charles Foster Kane in Orson Welles' masterpiece Citizen Kane. And if you're from Chicago, or really into architecture, you may have some foggy notion of her as a piece of the history of the Civic Opera House. Let's start with that last one. If you've ever taken a riverboat architecture tour in Chicago, and if you haven't, you really should. It's like the number one thing that anyone should do if they find themselves in the loop for a day. You've already heard an unlikely origin story for the Civic Opera House, now known as the Lyric. The west facade of the Civic, nay Lyric, abuts the river, and is sometimes called Insul's Throne, because it does indeed look like a giant stone chair. The Insul in question is Samuel Insul, a British-bred but Chicago-buttered business magnate who made a fortune as one of the founders of General Electric, Edison Electric, the Western Electric Light Company, the Chicago Edison Company, Commonwealth Electric Light and Power, Commonwealth Edison, People's Gas, and a half dozen railroads. At the height of his wealth, he was worth about $7.5 billion at today's rate, or $500 million at the time. Unfortunately for Insull, that time was 1929. The Great Depression totally bankrupted him and his holding company, taking the life savings of 600,000 shareholders along with it. Insull fled the country for France to escape mail fraud and antitrust charges. The U.S. government asked France to extradite him, so he fled to Greece and then Turkey, where he was finally arrested and brought back to Chicago in 1934 to face the court. Then he was found not guilty of all charges. Anyway, in addition to his utility businesses and railways, Insull also owned a couple of radio stations and was interested in arts patronage. So he had the Civic Opera House built, not just to give Chicago a great cultural center, but also as a place from which he could broadcast radio stations coast to coast, from the top of his 45-story, 555-foot-tall throne. 
But if you've taken the Chicago Architectural Boat Tour, which you really should, by the way, you've no doubt heard about another motivating factor for the Civic's construction. According to every guide I've ever had, it was built to provide a career for Insull's untalented but ambitious soprano wife. She had been spurned by the operas in New York, and so Insull had the Civic's throne built facing west, turning his back on the East Coast for their ingratitude. That story is bullshit. Look, I said you should take the architectural boat tour, not that you should believe the architectural boat tour. Never believe anything someone tells you on a boat, you know that. Samuel Insull did marry an actress that was several decades his junior, but she wasn't an opera singer and she wasn't spurned by New York. To the contrary, Gladys Wallace was a Broadway star, but as you might hope, there is some truth behind this urban legend, and that truth's name was, naturally, Ghana Walska. Ghana Walska was born Hannah Poit in Brest, which is now a part of Belarus, was before that part of Poland, and at the time was a part of Russia. And actually before that, Brest was part of Lithuania, but let's not get bogged down in details here. When Ghana Walska was a teenager, she left her home for St. Petersburg, at which she attended a royal ball where she was named the most beautiful woman in attendance. So naturally, she got to marry the Baron Arcadia Dianorn, who was there. The Einhorn was a drunk and a cheat, and their marriage was dissolved two years after it had begun. Now calling herself Countess, she set out to become a famous opera singer, changing her name to Ganovalska to sound more Russian. She tried her luck in Paris and found very little there. With World War I on, she then moved to New York with hopes of working her way up from cabaret singer to opera diva. Instead, she hurt her larynx, which turned out to be a bit of good fortune, as the injury introduced her to Dr. Joseph Frankel, a New York endocrinologist, close friend to Gustav Mahler, and, ten days after they met, second husband to Countess Ganawalska. Dr. Frankel was a good deal kinder and nearly as rich as the Baron, but unfortunately he was also quite old, and just four years into their marriage he kicked the bucket. That same year, she married her third husband, Alexander Smith Cochran, the heir to the Alexander Smith & Sons carpet fortune, which sounds like I'm joking, but no, Alexander Smith & Sons was the largest carpet manufacturer in the world, and in 1902, Cochran had inherited $40 million, making him the richest bachelor in New York, according to the society pages. Alexander and Ghana married in 1920 and divorced in 1922. By then, she was already four years into what was at least a flirtation, if not a downright affair, with her fourth, her richest, and her most famous husband-to-be, Harold Fowler McCormick. Now, Alexander Smith Cochran may have been rich for a New York bachelor, but Harold Fowler McCormick was richer than all the New York bachelors put together. The McCormick's fortune started with Robert McCormick Jr. and his son Cyrus Hall McCormick Sr., who, let's say for simplicity's sake, together invented the mechanical reaper, and so ushered in the age of modern grain harvesting with what became the International Harvester Company. International Harvester revolutionized food and farming throughout the world, so that was enough to make the McCormicks one of the wealthiest families in history. But wait, there's more. The McCormicks married in with another of Chicago's most powerful families, the Medills, owners of the Chicago Tribune, dog waggers of the Republican Party, and chief movers of Abraham Lincoln into the White House. 
By the time Harold met Ghana, the Medill McCormicks had their hands in an almost incomprehensible number of schemes. They had one of the country's biggest investment banks, one of the country's biggest real estate firms, and one or two McCormicks could be found at any time in high-ranking positions in the U.S. government. Harold wasn't a senator like his brother Joe, and he wasn't a newspaper impresario like his cousin Colonel Robert R. McCormick, who wasn't actually a colonel. Nor was he an artist or a great philanthropist or a banker or a great patron of the arts. Harold didn't do much at all. He played tennis, he liked to sail, he liked flying a lot, and formed an early commuter airline, but it only flew between Grant Park in downtown Chicago to Lake Forest in the northern suburbs. That must have seemed like a smart route to Harold, who lived in Lake Forest and worked near Grant Park, but aside from him, not many people needed or wanted to fly between the two, and the airline went belly up in less than a year. Still, Harold managed to be even richer than all of his relatives through a single, very canny business venture. Marrying Edith Rockefeller. Harold's wife and Ghana's husband were only two of the impediments to the romance that began budding between them at almost the moment they met on a cruise in 1918. Another problem, at least in Harold's view, was his waning virility. After he left Edith in a contentious but not unprofitable divorce, but before Ghana left Cochrane, Harold sought out Sergei Voronov to help him get a little zip back in his miracle whip. Voronov was a Russian-born Jew who had the good sense to get the hell out of there in the 1880s. He emigrated to France, where he studied medicine under Alexis Carrel, the Nobel Prize-winning father of vascular surgery, and, well, also eugenics. We'll talk about Carrel some other time. Anyway, at the turn of the century, Voronov began developing a treatment which... Oh, man. How to explain Voronov's treatment? Well, okay, let's just out with it. Voronov started grafting monkey testicles onto people. Not just testicles, but also thyroid glands. And not just from monkeys, but from baboons, chimpanzees, and recently executed murderers, too. He started out injecting himself with ground-up guinea pig testicles, following in the unsuccessful footsteps of endocrinologist Charles Edward Brown Saccard. The injection didn't do anything for Voronov either, surprise, surprise, but that didn't bother him. He believed that the secret to long life strength, energy, and, of course, horniness, lay in the gonads, and knew in his loin of loins that transplanting young and healthy nuts into older and sickly things would make them young and healthy again. He spent a decade experimenting this way on animals, mostly taking the testes of young goats and implanting them into old ones. Through these experiments, he became more and more convinced that he was right. The freshly reballed geezers had more pep, more stamina, and more boners. He also thought their eyesight improved. So, he started inserting sections of chimp testicles into the sacks of older human men. The operation was a big, sweaty, salty, saggy success. I mean, not in the sense that it worked, it most definitely did not work, but in the sense that lots of very rich, insecure white men were willing to pay top dollar for it. Eventually, Voronov performed thousands of chimp ball transplants. Eventually, he founded his very own monkey farm on the Italian Riviera, which became known as Castle Voronov to keep up with the demand for testicles. Eventually, his operation grew to encompass a whole floor of the Savoy Hotel. Eventually, he started offering a complimentary operation for the fairer sex, transplanting monkey ovaries into postmenopausal women. 
He also did a bit of the reverse, transplanting a set of human ovaries into a chimp, which he then attempted to inseminate with human sperm. And, as sure as a ball sack droops in the summer sun, he was eventually revealed as a fraud. That's the way the monkey ball crumbles. But before all of that, one of Voronoff's first patients was the recently divorced Harold McCormick, who was hoping a little taste of the old chimp testicle would give him the oomph he needed to tear Gonovalska away from Alexander Smith Cochran. And I suppose it did. In 1922, Gonna divorced Cochran, and that same year, married McCormick. Harold McCormick's monkey nuggets probably weren't what won Ghana over. Likely, it was McCormick's unreasonable riches. She liked his billfold, not his coin purse, if you get me. See, what Ghana Volska wanted more than anything else was, if you'll recall, to be an opera singer. I've only been able to track down one recording of her in a duet with Georges Thill, the greatest French tenor of the age. Here's Georges, and then Ghana. She was quite bad. But that was nothing that Harold Chimp Knackers McCormick couldn't fix. He spent thousands of dollars on voice lessons with the leading teacher in the world, Cecily Gilly. He bought her training. He bought her gigs. He even bought her a theater in Paris. And finally, he bought her the leading role in Ruggiero Leoncavallo's Zaza at the Chicago Civic Opera, Insul's Throne. During dress rehearsal, the director stormed out in disgust and the production was canceled before it opened. When productions weren't canceled, things went worse. The New York Times said that during a performance of Fedora, she was so out of tune that the audience threw fruit and vegetables at her. Soon, her terrible voice was supplanted as her biggest liability. After getting consistently booed and pelted with tomatoes, she inexplicably developed terrible stage fright, and performance after performance had to be called as she stood blank and mute on the stage. She fled back to Paris, with McCormick pleading for years in vain for her to return to Chicago, and when she would not, he finally divorced her in 1931. Finally, in 1938, Ganawalska turned over a new leaf. No more marriages to barons, doctors, playboys, and millionaires. This time she would marry a death ray maker. Your friend and mine, Harry Grindle Matthews. They lived happily ever after except that Matthews was by then a near-total recluse holed up in his private laboratory in Wales, which Ghana disliked. He was also a paranoid and jealous husband, which she hated but was at least used to. Oh, and also he died three years later of a massive heart attack. So, not quite happily, or ever, or after, but something different, at least. Whew. And that is the end of Ghana Volska's brief involvement with the death ray craze. She later fell in love with her yoga teacher, a quiet white Tibetan Buddhist from Tombstone, Arizona, named Theos Casimir Bernard, whom she married in 1942. He convinced her to buy a 37-acre estate in Montecito, California, just outside Santa Barbara, which they named Tibetland. He hoped to bring a group of Tibetan monks to live there, but since it was the middle of World War II, that proved impossible, and instead Theos turned his energies towards angry, drunken abuse, the sort of thing you expect from a Buddhist yogi master. Ghana divorced him in 1946. She renamed Tibetland Lotusland and spent the rest of her life building it into one of the grandest botanical gardens on earth. When she died in 1984, she bequeathed it to the Lotusland Foundation, which now preserves it for the public. Theos Casimir Bernard, on the other hand, remarried to another wealthy heiress, who he took to India in 1947 
When traveling through Punjab, war broke out and they were both shot and thrown into a river. What an act! What do you call it? The Aristocrats! Thanks for going on that ride with me. Next time, on part two, Nikola Tesla, Guillermo Marconi, face off against one another and a host of other oddball scientists and war-weary governments in the final push to finally create the death ray for real. And if you believe certain wide-eyed conspiracy theorists, at least one of them may have succeeded. Music for today's episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rose Vare, Jules Gaia, Elot, and Gustav Mahler. Our website is constantpodcast.com, where you can find our merch store, our social media presences, and our Patreon page, patreon.com slash the constant, which you can go to to help support the making of the show. We're part of Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, home to Soonish, where Wade Rausch just released a new episode about ultra-rare diseases and the hope on the horizon that we might be able to cure them. Until next time from Chicago, Illinois, where Mark lost his voice yelling, so now I have to record this. This has been The Constant. In 1924, the Death Ray makers really started coming out of the woodwork, including a Russian named Gramachkov. Gramachkov, perhaps. We'll see if anybody gets pissed at my Russian pronunciations. <laughs> <laughs>